Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Wow, David, all-star cast today. Kathy Wood came on the podcast. Uh, two analysts, former analysts, Chris Berninski, whom Bankless listeners already know, and also Yassine Elamadra. And wow, it was just a fantastic conversation. I almost felt like we were in the room with them brainstorming the future of crypto with these incredibly savvy investors, just a wealth of information, almost like insider information, as well as you were kind of witnessing an ARK Invest meeting on crypto. Yeah, this this was an interesting peek inside of the dynamics of ARK Invest, right? It felt a little bit like a reunion. We have Kathy and, and current crypto analyst Yassine also back with with uh, Chris Berniski, who uh, you know has he has his thoughts like intertwined into the crypto side of Ark Invest. So seeing that dynamic in this episode was was really really powerful. I think my favorite part about this was, uh, and we talk about this a lot at Bankless, these aging, fragile, antiquated institutions. And Kathy and the team over at Ark Invest really put this into a, a new perspective that I really really enjoyed, which was these institutions keep on looking backwards in order to form their investments. They keep on looking into history. Yep. And that has left such a massive opportunity for people who are actually forward looking, which is the whole point of investment in the first place. And so they, the institutions of the world, which on the Bankless program, we criticize as, like I said, as being just old antiquated institutions have really given a ton of opportunity for retail investments, retail educated retail investors to make some of the brightest and most informed and most precise investments in this space. Uh, and that has really caused a massive division in Wall Street uh, about like the approaches to things like Tesla. And of course, the approach to things like crypto, where the traditional institutions of the world reject crypto, yet the retail network, retail investors of this world really help bootstrap these networks in the decentralized way that they were always supposed to be in the first place. Um, and it, gosh, there are so many other things in this conversation that... that uh, yeah, I totally agree with that, though, David. Like, even their metrics are wrong. Even their mm -hmm. investment metrics are wrong because what? They're, they're based on the past and they're based on assets that existed in the past. Kathy, at one point in time, called herself uh, rebellious. Mm -hmm. People on Wall Street thought she was rebellious, um, ca called herself an odd duck. Mm -hmm. And I was just reflecting on, wow, that fits yeah. exactly into uh, into crypto, crypto natives. We are odd ducks. We are rebellious uh, by nature, but we are looking at this asset class and projecting it into the future. And sometimes we look at the outside world and we're like, what are you guys doing? Right. Like, How are you missing waving this? Waving our hands. How are you missing this? Right. It's so obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think Kathy sees some of that too, just the obvious nature of how big crypto is going to be and how quickly it's going to get there. At one part in the conversation, David, she actually blew my mind too. I uh, won't reveal like where exactly that is, but when we were talking about banks and mm -hmm. um, asking whether they felt threatened, um, yeah, she had a really interesting response on that that totally blew my mind. Yeah, the other part I thought was really cool, Ryan, is that their crypto analyst, Yassine, said that he's actually used some some bankless content to inform <laughs> some, some ARK Invest yes. analysis onto Ether and Ethereum, which I feel uh, very, very proud of that we've actually been able to, to influence the way that ARK treats uh, some of these crypto networks that we hold so dear. Yeah, and th that's what this is. This whole crypto discovery process, it's like just one big group conversation online, right? Like so many of our ideas were actually influenced by Chris Berninski, who is also in this conversation today. So it's just this um, 
feedback, this open source feedback loop of like discovery on what this asset class is, what the relevant metrics are. And uh, this is all about how Kathy and ARK Invest think about this asset class. So absolutely fascinating discussion. Guys, I know you are going to enjoy this. So sit back, enjoy. One last thing before we begin, David and I have a special debrief today. There was some after the podcast conversation that we had with Chris and Kathy and Yassine. Want to fill you in on what they said after the podcast. I think some interesting tidbits there. So mm-hmm. to get access to that, you have to subscribe to the Bankless Premium feed. That is available for all Bankless Premium members. We'll include a link in the show notes so you become a premium member and get access to that as well. Without further ado, we want to thank the sponsors who made this episode possible and then get to the conversation. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. Bankless Nation, we are super excited. We are honored to introduce our next guests to you. We've got uh, three individuals assembled here. I'm going to introduce them one by one. The first is Kathy Wood. She is the founder of ARK Invest, legendary investment firm. Kathy founded ARK in 2014, Focus, Disruptive Innovation. They do actively managed ETFs. That's the product. ARK just passed $50 billion in assets under management earlier this year, and they've delivered some of the best returns that Wall Street has had to offer all through one thing, and that's investing 
in the future. So it's no surprise they were also early to crypto. Kathy, great to have you. How are you doing? Uh, great to be here, Ryan. I'm doing fine. And I have uh, you have two other individuals I know you're going to introduce of whom I am so proud. So why don't why don't you take it away? Well, these are these are fantastic individuals as well. Uh, the next is Yasin Elmandra. Yasin joined Arc in July 2018 as the lead crypto asset analyst, where he focus focuses on crypto assets. Of course, the portfolio allocation of them, the institutionalization of them. He also has a specialty in on-chain metrics. Yasin, great to have you as well. Great to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And Bankless Nation, you also know Chris Berninski from a previous Bankless episode. Uh, he's a venture capitalist and partner at Placeholder VC. Before starting Placeholder, he actually worked for Kathy as a crypto analyst back in 2014, back when crypto was called like next generation internet. Uh, and he led the firm to become the first public fund manager to invest in Bitcoin. Chris, thanks for having for coming back with friends this time. Uh, good to have friends. you, sir. <laughs> Thanks for having us, guys. So Happy, are are those asset numbers outdated by now? Oh yeah, we're. Um, I think we're a bit north of seventy five billion. There you go. Yeah, congrats. Fast. congrats. <laughs> yeah, well done. Congrats. We've been blessed with great talent. So. Uh, fantastic. And you, you've been blessed with some foresight too, which we're going to get into first. But just to give everyone some context of how we're going to do this podcast, I feel like what we're trying to do is paint this beautiful tapestry of crypto investing. So Kathy's going to help paint the picture. Uh, Yasin's going to add the detail and Chris is going to add color as we go. And I got to ask before we begin, um, when was the last time this dream team, the three of you guys were assembled together? Or is this the first time? I don't know. Believe was Believe it, the- it or not, it was earlier this week. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did I forget that? <laughs> That's true. We were on a, I'm the, I thought you meant physically together. Mm. Uh, physically might have been your book signing, Chris. I might be wrong on that. Uh, yeah. The Crypto Assets book, Chris? That, that's how I met Yassine three and a half years ago. And that's actually, I, I like to think how I landed my job at ARC. Uh, but it was, a, it was a it was a funny story where I actually stumbled upon uh, Arc through Twitter, and I was following both Chris and Kathy at the time. Uh, and I was a college, I was a, a senior in, in college. And at 11 p.m., right before I was going to sleep, I see a tweet from Chris of "Make sure that you come to my book signing tomorrow in New York at 5 a.m." <laughs> and I was like, "All right, I have to go." <laughs> so I ended up booking a, a train ticket that night, uh, and that's where I met uh, both Kathy and Chris. Uh, and that was kind of in the middle of my my interview process. So, look, you seen? I don't know how many people that book brought into crypto, but I am one of those people actually. So I started to really get interested after reading uh, Chris's crypto asset book. It was kind of foundational to uh, me coming up in the space. So, Chris, you brought a lot of good people into crypto, sir. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. That's gratifying to hear. And I learned a lot of it from Kathy and Yasin's hustle worked, you know, for everyone who's out there trying to get a job in the space, um, showing up physically and um, displaying your passion and your ability to commit in that way um, is meaningful. Attend those attend those book signings, guys. That's what you have to do to get a job in crypto. All right. So we're definitely going to talk about crypto today. But first, I think we want to 
uh, do, do some high-level orientation here. And Kathy, we want to understand a bit more about how you think, how you think about investing. And I think as David and I were talking about doing this show, one thing that really struck us is um, ARC has seen an insane level of success, I think, by doing one thing very simply, and that is pricing in the future today. Like no one is pricing in the future like Kathy Wood and ARC Invest and your talented analysts. And, and that seems to be the investment thesis for ARC. And I, I want to ask this question to orient us. What makes you think this future that we're always talking about is so close? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <clears throat> we are on the threshold of uh, an explosion in innovation. And crypto is symptomatic of it. Uh, uh, the seeds for what is about to happen were planted during the 20 years that ended with the tech and telecom bubble. Those seeds have been gestating for 20 to 25 years, sometimes 30 years, and are now beginning to blossom uh, and that's not even the right word. They're, they're, they are exploding into, into existence. So we think there are five major platforms, 14 different technologies that are all uh, getting ready to move into the sweet spot of their S-curves. And there are going to be convergences between and among these technologies. So you're going to have one S-curve feeding another, feeding another. Uh, and creating explosive energy and explosive growth. And I think in the in the crypto space, uh, we're going to see blockchain technology and artificial intelligence converge and cause explosive reactions. So it's it's pretty exciting. Uh, just to get back to um, investing in the future, when I, when I uh, was trying to explain to someone what I wanted to do before starting ARC, uh, and who's not in our business, he said to me, oh, you mean that in that the future of investing is investing in the future? And I said, you got it. Well, now, when I started in the business, that's the only that's the only way people thought about investing. Uh, and then we went through the tech and tele telecom bust and then the 0809 meltdown. And we ended up with huge risk aversion in the markets and uh, a tendency to invest very much like the broad-based indices out there. Uh, in other words, not adding much more value than the indices themselves. And the indices are where they are because of what has happened historically. The largest companies, the most heavily weighted companies in these indices are there because of their past success. But if we're right, and all of this disruptive innovation is about to explode, well, they Kathy, are in, in a way. presentation that ARC gave in that the big idea is 2019, there's a slide that you guys have uh, that talks about, uh, illustrates some sort of relationship between innovation and investment and just the development of technologies and uh, uh, the future. And on the very right side of this graph, where we are currently today, 2020, you guys have it just like soaring up into the right with exactly what you just said, like so many different technologies all hitting the peak uh, a steepness of their S-curve all at once. So a couple questions here. Have we ever seen any sort of alignment of the stars with how many different technologies are like really hitting their strides all at once? And what makes you believe that this is actually true? Yes, well, this uh, chart uh, was uh, was drawn by uh, Brett Winton or mm -hmm. developed by Brett Winton, uh, who's our director of research. 
And uh, he was working with academic literature to try and understand uh, what would be the productivity or the impact on productivity of the combination of these uh, uh, platforms. Uh, and what, what he's depicting here is the productivity uplift is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. We've only, we've had multiple platforms evolving at the same time, only once before. And that was in the early 1900s, telephone, automobile, and electricity. And uh, that, that world, uh, there was a, that, that was the technologically enabled innovation of the time and, and transformed our world completely. Let me put some numbers on where we are now. In 2019, when we did this chart, uh, we, um, we uh, uh, evaluated the market cap around the world associated with truly transformative uh, innovation. That was that year, it was $7 trillion. So it was less than 10% of the global equity market cap. That's public equity. Uh, the next year, last year, that doubled to 14 trillion. Uh, and we did have a very good year last year. We believe that in the next five to 10 years, that number is going to north of $100 trillion. Uh, but what, what we're not saying when we do so that's the upside. Uh, the downside will be in the broad-based benchmarks which have uh, been beneficiaries of the traditional world order and are now going to be disrupted and disintermediated. So in order to su summarize this section about like this explosive innovation, what what is the current market holding true that you think the market is fundamentally wrong about? Uh, I think... Um, uh, the, the pace of innovation and the convergence uh, between and among these platforms. Uh, most investors have never seen exponential growth. Well, they, they recall seeing it once. It was during the tech and telecom bubble, and that ended badly. Uh, and that's why there's been this allergic reaction to innovation and high valuations. Um, most investors have a one-year time horizon, maybe 18 months. We have a five-year investment time horizon. The early years of exponential growth, when we're at low numbers in terms of the base, uh, the numbers don't look that much different from linear growth. But when you uh, go out five years, the difference between exponential, so revenue growth rates in the 25 to 50% range per year, and, uh, and let's say GDP growth, which might be 5% at best, night and day. Uh, and I think what gives us uh, the differentiation is our starting point. We start from the top down trying to size markets, and we center our research on something called Wright's Law. Wright's Law is a relative of Moore's Law. Uh, Moore's Law is a function of time. Wright's Law is a function of units. And, uh, and actually, Wright's Law has worked better in the semiconductor industry than Moore's Law itself during the last few years. Uh, and so that's how we get to numbers like... Um, uh, the electric vehicle space, 2.2 million last year, but the costs are dropping to such an extent now that we think that number is going to 40 million, almost half of the uh, global 
cars sold uh, in five years, actually more like four years now. Uh, no one has that kind of uh, accelerated growth in their models. They've never seen it before, so they're not modeling it in the future. But Wright's Law is a very good guide. Just just to hop in and emphasize this point, because I'm sure Yasin and I both have built these, these right law, Wright's Law models. Um, Kathy's saying like, as you increase the units of production, there's a certain cost decline curve to that technology. Um, and so that's a lot of ARC's work of being able to predict out five, 10 years, what are the costs of these things going to be based on the, the units produced? Um, there's this other thing that was coming to my mind as Kathy was talking, and Elon Musk has this line of fate loves irony, um, which always messes up my head. But um, when I think about how backward looking a lot of traditional finance has become, that comes at the same time, and the backwards looking is, as Kathy's saying, focusing on indices and investing based on the past. That's happening at the same time that the world is changing at an accelerating rate. And so there is this, this tragic irony that people are more and more backwards looking in their investing, at least institutions are, while you know the opportunity is getting larger and larger in the future. And I think that what, what's great about that actually is it opens up a space for retail. Um, and, you know, ARC is predominantly, I think, retail favored yes. with growing institutional respect. And I think that will only grow over time. But the opportunity is really for retail to catch up to institutions. You guys say front run the opportunity, but it's just retail being future looking while the institutions are backwards looking. Well said, absolutely. And this kind of this this you know tragic irony that you're talking about, Chris, kind of gets into uh, another question that's been on my mind, which is this: like we all have haters out there. David and I, we have we have haters. You know, it doesn't take long. Go scroll our YouTube comments. You know, every <laughs> once in a while, there's lots of people who are, who are willing to um, you know trash what you're doing. And Kathy, you have some haters too. There's an anti Kathy Wood ETF out there. I've heard critics call what you're doing unprofitable tech. That's what they call your your sector. Um, our friend from Real Vision, Raul Paul, uh, was just on recently, and he says part of this is because people are fundamentally afraid of change. Is there something to that? Why do you think there are you know, like the haters of the world um, disparaging the work that you're doing and, and kind of your method? Um, actually, I feel very comfortable when when I'm in that kind of situation. If everybody loved what we were doing and were ch and were and and they were chasing it, uh, I'd feel much less comfortable. So I'm kind of used to it. I've faced it uh, actually inside the traditional world as well, as I became an otter and otter duck, uh, and my uh, counterparts were becoming more benchmark sensitive. So, you know, it was kind of, uh, it seemed like to them at least, uh, rebellious. Uh, so are they afraid of change? Um, I think there's muscle memory associated, uh, certainly at the high level management associated with the tech and telecom bubble and many equity uh, uh, leaders went down and uh, basically ceded power to the fixed income uh, market. So many of the leaders of financial firms came out of the fixed income world uh, because of the tech and telecom bust, 
many uh, equity uh, leaders lost their jobs then. And then again, 08, 09. And so you have this very conservative group of people who really uh, haven't managed equities ever uh, and and uh, actually uh, understand more benchmark sensitivity since that's how that work world's, world works. Um, uh, and I, I suppose this just seems like, uh, again, an odd duck running around uh, with her head cut off. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they, they're not willing to look at the kind of research we're doing, which we provide freely out there. In fact, we provide our uh, Tesla model, right? <laughs> and, and to help to educate people saying, look, We've done the research that supports these numbers. And I think the biggest surprise to me is that giving the research away, spoon feeding them with the models has has not changed much, Uh, but I think it will change. We're just gonna keep, if we're right, if we are right, uh, then those who are wedded to benchmarks are going to lose their jobs. I I I would only add that your research has educated retail, right? Institutions yes. might yeah. might be um, dismissing it currently, but you have your following, Kathy, Yassine has his following, like ARC's team has been empowered to connect with their audiences. And while there are haters of ARC, there's a much larger army, I think, of lovers on, you know, Reddit and Twitter and everyone cheering on what ARC is, is doing um, based on the open source research. Which is it has has been wonderful. In fact, there's a concept called accredited investors in in our world. Accredited investors um, have to meet certain income and asset thresholds before they can invest in anything risky, uh, which the SEC deems risky. Uh, Now, Hester Peirce at the SEC is fighting this concept. And so are we. We're trying to democratize investing and give these opportunities to to anyone. Now, if you ask me who are the accredited investors in our space, I'm going to tell you it's the retail. They know because they're reading our research. And, you know, these, these investments uh, they do not, many of them do not make lightly. They want to study everything we put out. Those are the truly accredited investors. So hopefully we're going to be working with the SEC uh, over time to 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 change that dynamic. Well said. Yassine, what do you want to add to this? Yeah, I, I was going to add that, you know, hate really kind of signals that you're onto something most of the time. There's that whole like famous quote of like, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Like that's, that's kind of what we're seeing in real time here. Um, you know, I'd, I'd also add that it, I don't think it's a coincidence how aligned kind of the crypto adoption curve or the crypto ethos has been with kind of ARC's trajectory as well. You know, it starts obviously at, at, at the open source research ecosystem level where, you know, we want the information, we, we, we acknowledge that the information is commoditized. So the best way to use that information is to share it with the world so that it can battle test our assumptions. It's going to be out there. It's open source. Same thing is, is happening in crypto, right? You have readily available data that anyone can access. It levels the playing field. Uh, and then in terms of the adoption curve as well, I mean, the first to, to kind of bootstrap these networks are retail investors. 
um, they, and, and, and they, in a, in a lot of ways, um, were way ahead of the curve relative to institutional investors. Where now institutional investors are have just begun to dip their toes um, in Bitcoin, let alone you know other other uh, crypto assets. So um, there's some high alignment. It's and it's really interesting to kind of see that play out in real time. So bankless listener, I, I hope you can begin to see the lens through which Arc views everything, and it's very much aligned with with a crypto lens. I heard things like open source analysis, heard things like S curves and exponential growth. Um, you know, Kat, Kathy talked about herself as an odd duck. I feel like an odd yep. duck. I feel like a rebellious investor when we're talking about these things. I'm sure many of you listening will resonate too. Um, so let's get to that topic of maybe maybe one of the oddest things around. You guys started doing crypto in 2014. That had to be that had to turn a lot of heads, of course. And I know you have a five technology platforms you're investing in. So genomics is one. Artificial intelligence is a second. Robotics is a third. Energy storage, uh, and then also blockchain. We, we can call it crypto on this podcast. So let's talk about that last one, the weirdest one, maybe the most understood, maybe the most rebellious to date. I'm not sure. This question for Kathy, I'm curious at the highest level, what do you see in crypto? Well, again, my aha moment was uh, after Chris had really written the, the paper, could Bitcoin serve the role of money? We're just working from a very basic level. And uh, it was we were talking about a $6 billion market cap at the time, or network value, as we were calling it. And uh, we had Art Laffer take a look at this paper. And uh, he looked at it and, and helped us. We wanted it to be absolutely correct from an economic point of view, he looked at it and he looked up and he said, wow, he said, this is what I've been looking for all my life. This is a rules-based monetary policy, a global rules-based monetary policy. And uh, I ended up saying, oh, okay, well, if that's true, how big could this become? And he said, well, how big is the U.S. monetary base? And at that time, it was four and a half trillion. Now it's eight trillion uh, because he he was dimensioning it as though it would be the reserve currency, a reserve currency out there. So that that so a, a global inter, rules based inter, uh, uh, monetary system, hugely important uh, for humanity, I believe, uh, and I share uh, Art's view. I was educated by him, so that's not surprising. But uh, and then um, I think the idea again. Uh, Chris wrote the book. Uh, we're we're dealing here with a new asset class, uh, also for for investors, uh, unlike anything uh, um, we've seen before, and you know unlocking huge productivity uh, and um, creating inclusion like we've never seen before globally. So I think, uh, and decentralized finance is uh, just mushrooming as we see. So, you know, it's, it's becoming, it's going viral. Yasin, I want to pick your brain here with this next question. Uh, Kathy just talked about uh, in 2014, peeking into the world of crypto, seeing Bitcoin, seeing that it might actually compare to the monetary base of the U.S. dollar. Uh, that, and again, that was in 2014, 2015. We're in 2021 now. Uh, how has uh, ARC's 
model for what Bitcoin can be or what it is perhaps changed over time? And then are there any like on-chain metrics that you like to, to peek at that help you back up this belief that has either stayed the same or changed since uh, the initial impression that ARK Invest got in 2014? Sure. So I, I'd say I want to continue kind of that narrative evolution um, mm-hmm. that, that Kathy mentioned, right? Where, you know, we started off in, in 2015 with could, could Bitcoin serve the role as a disruptive currency? Um, Chris, a few years later, kind of wrote, um, you know, is Bitcoin the birth of a new asset class? Uh, and then more recently, we, we published a paper on kind of a new mental model around, you know, defining Bitcoin and these crypto networks as, as novel economic institutions, like as a, as a new form of institution, um, that, that kind of introduces a new form of economic guarantee. Uh, and I think that that is a, a very kind of interesting, uh, mental model, um, you know, especially as we're shifting from the physical to the digital world of what these institutions represent. Um, you know, there's a massive innovation now in, in basically kind of shared state, uh, where as opposed to with traditional databases, here you have kind of this read only database that is open source in which the right access is, is mediated by open and fair markets. Um, and so the coordination mechanism is, is completely, has completely evolved from, from what we traditionally rely on in centralized institutions. Um, and so when you kind of think about what this is really good for, um, it's great for money uh, or digital gold, as we're seeing with Bitcoin. Um, you know, what excites me the most about Bitcoin is that it's, it's really kind of the first legitimate attempt at a non-state money. Uh, it's, it's a representation of sovereignty. Um, you know, it's a tool for, for freedom in developing nations. Uh, and so the way that we kind of our, our thinking has evolved. And I, I recall in the early days when Chris was sizing the opportunity, you know, we were looking at the remittance use case. We were looking at kind of the, the potential digital store of value use case. Um, you know, now in the context of the macro conditions and the context of, you know, the broader adoption in developing nations, you know, I see Bitcoin as, as, as really this, this novel economic institution, um, that transcends borders, that it's politically neutral. Um, and that sort of introduces a new uh, mechanism to facilitate economic activity. Um, now, how, how does this kind of, how, how do we see this play out in real time and what sort of data uh, can, can supports this investment thesis or, or, or kind of the general adoption curve that we're seeing? You know, I, I think you can segment this in, in a few ways. I think there's the qualitative aspect of it, right? Where we're seeing the actual adoption firsthand in real time. Uh, you know, El Salvador this week announced that they have now rolled out Bitcoin as legal tender and people are able to kind of get their $30 worth of Bitcoin airdropped on their wallet. Um, you know, th- th- this la- these last, this last year, we've also seen, you know, corporations adopt Bitcoin on their own balance sheet, um, institutions. Uh, so there's been like kind of a, a general, uh, adoption curve, uh, that, that has extended beyond retail, uh, and particularly this year, um, that I think has, has excited us the, the most. Um, on, a, on the quantitative side of things, and you kind of alluded to this in terms of on-chain data, I think investors are increasingly starting to realize that the conventional frameworks to analyze these crypto assets um, aren't suitable. Uh, and in fact, I'll, I'll credit Chris again for you know, really bringing that conversation in the early days with, with how do you value crypto asset, right? You can't really apply a discounted cash flow model to valuing Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, and increasingly, we're starting to realize that the answer is actually right in front of us. It's with the, 
the, the, the wealth of data that these crypto assets provide uh, given their open source nature. And I think increasingly the power of on-chain data to assess the network health fundamentals on the first layer, but then on the second and third layer to actually identify the relative value of these assets based on what this data is telling us is going to become you know, a, lar- a, a very meaningful uh, part of, of how investors broadly uh, assess, uh, assess these assets. Uh, so we, we recently published kind of the, a framework by which to analyze on-chain data. Um, you know, we have this, this three-layered pyramid where we're at the first level. It's really just network health and, and fundamentals. So, you know, thinking about things like hash rate or transaction volume or minor revenue. It's like, is the network working as designed? Um, you know, that can't necessarily uh, give us a, an idea of the relative value of the network, but still gives us kind of a long-term fundamental view on it. Um, but then a layer above that, the, the beauty of this, this data is that you can then segment the data based on, you know, the number of coins that is located in each address and the amount of time that those coins have been in each address. And so that kind of creates these really interesting metrics that in the traditional asset space doesn't really exist. So imagine being able to, you know, have the cost basis of every single holder uh, and being able to identify the flows in and out of exchanges versus miners versus retail investors. So there's a there's a wealth of, of data that you can track that can that can assess buyer and seller behavior. And then upon that assessment, you can further manipulate the data to then identify kind of short to midterm price inefficiencies based on how holders are interacting, um, you know, with their asset. Uh, and so, you know, a famous example of that is of the MVRB ratio, right? Which takes the ratio of the market cap over the realized cap, uh, the realized cap being, being the cost basis of, of kind of crypto holders. And there you can kind of identify, you know, when the market is underwater, when the market might be, um, you know, primed for profit taking. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think that this is really the only, the, the, the beginning stages of, of creating the, this framework and, and tool set. Uh, but one that we're in, and I am in particular quite interested in and heavily focused on. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. There's so much uh, we could unpack there. I love what you're saying. You've seen about this new form of institution that's really taking hold. That's that's definitely a sentiment we share on um, on on Bankless. You were also talking about like. Um, the open source nature of this and hey the the answers are all available to us in the blockchain and that data is free and open and accessible to anyone it just takes the whole open source analysis thesis that arc has and and blows it out even further because now you don't even have to look at you know 10k filings right we have all of the secrets all of the answers are available to us in this on-chain data um, I, I want to ask. We, we talked a bit about Bitcoin and kind of the uh, the sound money thesis as a digital gold. Um, but it seems to me, and I think the crypto industry uh, is uh, increasingly recognized that the story doesn't end there. You know, Chris's book was titled "Crypto Assets" with an S, right? So we have Bitcoin, but now we have this um, th- this like wellspring of all of these other crypto assets that have come to the forefront. I want to ask you about. Um, Ether and Ethereum uh, next. So what are your thoughts on Ether as an asset and the Ethereum network? Kathy was talking about decentralized finance earlier. Maybe we can couch it in those terms. Um, Wondering if we could start with you, Kathy, your thoughts on Ethereum and what's going on in the uh, decentralized finance landscape and how that adds to the sound money value proposition that Bitcoin brings. 
Yeah, um, I I think um, we've we've um, we've been evolving our point of view on ether. When we when we started our analysis, we were pretty much, uh, and this was with Chris. Uh, Bitcoin was uh, uh, what we needed to understand first, uh, but we were keeping our eye on all of the other assets, and and we uh, stuck pretty closely to the thesis, the FAP protocol thesis that uh, Chris's partner, Joel Monegro, came up with at uh, Union Square Ventures, uh, which says that um, the value accrual will take place more at the currency level. And we believe there would be only a few currencies uh, in the world, much like uh, there are today. We thought we thought Bitcoin would be the reserve currency, and we were looking for the other currencies. And, and Ether was showing uh, uh, was showing up as uh, a very strong second, um, and and I have been surprised at how uh, how how Ether uh, and the Ethereum network is mushrooming uh, with stablecoins, NFTs, uh, uh, decentralized finance. It's clearly satisfying a huge unmet need. Uh, one of those needs is uh, yield out there. Um, and, and we see that in the fixed income markets, uh, the, the ridiculous uh, uh, rallies that have taken place, taking junk bond yields down to you know just a couple of hundred basis points above treasuries, that's kind of nuts. Uh, uh, so this, this, this hunger for yield is being satisfied by a much more efficient uh, financial ecosystem. And I think many more people are op more open-minded to it uh, as well. Um, uh, let's see, one of the things that has struck me from the beginning, and when Chris uh, started uh, at ARC, uh, which was very close to the beginning of the firm, um, I remember saying very early on, follow the developers, follow the developers. Well, uh, using uh, that metric, Ethereum is off the charts, you know, uh, uh, whereas Bitcoin is steady as she goes, still increasing, uh, steady as she goes, but clearly uh, Ethereum, uh, decentralized finance, NFTs, have hit a, a responsive chord. I think bringing the creator community into this ecosystem uh, is, you know, helping it go a little bit viral more quickly than we would have expected. So you guys are bullish then on uh, Bitcoin, bullish ETH. Yes, indeed. I would add to when Arc was beginning its investigations into crypto, Ethereum didn't exist. Right. Um, if you go back to 2014, it was just an idea. Um, when ARC first established its Bitcoin positions, Ethereum, the network, had just launched a few months prior. Um, I remember, you know, knockdown, drag out fights, arguments uh, in ARC brainstorms. I mean, that's that's putting it, it too harshly, but contentious <laughs> debates um, around the DAO in 2016. Um, and uh, you know, ARC is full of varied viewpoints, and I think that's part of its strength, right? Allowing everyone to, to express their viewpoints. Um, but when the DAO happened in 2016, that was, uh, at least for me, the catalyst of, oh my God, this thing just raised over $200 million from people all over the world. Um, yes, it got hacked. Yes, it's a disaster. But the fact that this happened 
um, is indicative of uh, power, basically. And, um, and I would say that with Ethereum, you know, in particular, because ARC dives so deep into the um, tech and um, wants to understand things through and through, Ethereum has had a lot of problems um, in a way in which Bitcoin hasn't. And so also as, as an at-scale investor, you know, even though ARC is as risk tolerating as they come on the institutional side, um, the, the risk profile of Ethereum for a long time, I would say wasn't suitable for ARC. Um, and it's, it's in the last year or two entered a sweet spot, a sweet spot of suitability for ARC. And I think I've seen the whole team embrace that and say, okay, you know, even though I'm not a, a explicit part of the ARC team, we're still in close contact. I see, you know, a focus and openness to what's going on in the Ethereum space. Chris will always be an important part of the ARC team <laughs> and his DNA is in ARC. I want to reflect on a, a, a meetup that you organized, uh, uh, Chris. Remember, we brought the yeah. Bitcoin and the Ether uh, developers together uh, or yeah. investors and developers in our our first office, you know, one of those startup offices. And uh, Chris was preparing he was trying to, he was thinking about how to manage the discussion so that there would not be a war. <laughs> and, and what I remember at the time, as I was sitting there and I was listening to these developers. This was late 16, early 17, just to place yes. people. So like Ethereum was in decline. It was like at like six or seven bucks. Seven dollars. Um, it was seven. Yeah. Like we'd come off like the middle of 16 kind of frenzy around the Dow sold off from like 25 to seven. Um, Bitcoin was like kind of pushing up and we tried to bring, the focus was to bring Ethereum and Bitcoin together. Anyway, go, go on. Yeah, so, uh, and I said, oh my gosh, this is crazy. You know, this is so interesting listening to the developers, but also understanding there would be a place for both. This was not an either or. That was a bit of an aha moment. The DAO, um, that uh, Chris, Chris came in and presented the DAO at a brainstorm. And I was fascinated. I was saying, wow, that's pretty wild. And but then there were others in uh, on the team who were just like pushing back and saying, this, this is going to blow up and felt, felt which it did. Which it did. Right. Felt vindicated when it blew up, but that my experience in innovation is when you're onto something early, uh, there are bound to be problems, and when it blows up is when you invest. That's when you really think about the investing. And I'll say just in terms of ether and uh, the NFTs and the creator community, um, I was listening to uh, one of uh, one of placeholders calls and uh, I, I, they featured uh, the CEO of async art and I had never heard async art. I had never heard about this, this phenomenon at all. He starts speaking and I'm on a walk and I am smiling from ear to ear. I have not smiled that wide a smile since I first heard of the <laughs> internet, just to give you a sense. Wow. Mm -hmm. that, that's the impact that NFTs 
had on you. This, yeah. this idea of ASIC art and what they're building on, on NFTs. Yes. I was saying, oh my gosh, the layering that sort of get the com- creator creators involved with this. This could go nuts. So, why? What did you see? What, what was comparable to the early internet, Kathy? Just the awe of how how new and differentiated, how how a different way of thinking, a way to reward creators, uh, which we've been looking for for generations or forever, right? And this idea that you could have, you know, a, a, a piece of art and then layer it and sell pieces of it off and have the underlying creator still uh, get rewarded for, you know, thinking up such an, an interesting idea. I just thought, wow, this is so collaborative. It is so collaborative. And that's where the world's going. That's how ARC is set up, too, as being very collaborative and iterative in our thinking. And so that's what I felt when, when, I, uh, when I heard the CEO of Async Art talk. Balancer is a powerful platform for flexible automated market makers. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indices, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect the fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fees based on market conditions, or even or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we use a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool using asset managers. Balancer's vault architecture lets you trade between balancer pools at a fraction of the cost versus other platforms. And you can even take advantage of dynamic fees, which automatically adapt to changing market conditions. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the balancer pools at app.balancer.fi. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum, which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version 2 has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens in ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. 
I think uh, viewing Ethereum as like so in all of crypto as kind of a, a new capital coordination system is is a powerful lens for this thing. And I want to bring Yassine into into the conversation here as we're talking about ETH as an asset and we're talking about valuation earlier. And it's always been this question of how do we value these weird crypto assets that are coming down the pike? I feel like, you know, Bitcoin got this valuation method based on a store of value, based on being kind of a gold. Um, Chris actually surfaced a, a paper that was written, I'm not sure, 1997, 1998, about these three different asset superclasses that was super helpful for my own mental model, where we talk about capital assets, they produce cash flows, and that's one super uh, super class. And the second is commodities, so things like you know wheat and uh, grains and oil. And then we have store value assets, right? And it feels like uh, Bitcoin has been placed in that store value asset category, maybe a little bit commodity. I mean, you have to use Bitcoin to pay for Bitcoin transactions, but it's in the, those two categories. You've seen, how do you view Ether as an asset? How do you attempt to, to value that? Does it fit in one of those asset categories for you? Does it, does it fit in all three? What's your take there? That's a, that's a really good question. And, and quite honestly, I'd say that a lot of my thinking here has been inspired by what you guys put out. So there, there's definitely a, a back and forth here. I think you hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of how the market has really accepted Bitcoin, I'd say as a digital gold since really 2017, right? When we kind of think about this, you know, from an institutional pitch standpoint, it's like the narrative for Bitcoin is pretty much set in stone. And it's kind of one very easy to make the case for Bitcoin as an investment but then by extension kind of value the different opportunities. I think with Ethereum, it is a little bit different in that investors have really yet to converge on, on a primary narrative on how to value ETH. Um, and I think that that also has to do with the fact that the narrative um, is evolving in the same way that Bitcoin's narrative has evolved. Um, you know, one of my biggest breakthroughs in, in thinking about, you know, how to how to, how to value ETH, especially compared to Bitcoin. And something that Kathy alluded to is that, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are differentiated enough where they can coexist. And in a lot of ways, it isn't really a, a zero sum game. It, it, it's, it's a positive sum game where, um, you know, the, the, you're, you're unlocking kind of new, new uh, pockets of value that otherwise were non-existent. Um, with Ethereum specifically, I think, you know, there, there's a question of, of Ether as like this natural resource, this digital commodity. Um, and if you think about as the, as the general economy transitions from the physical to the digital world, um, that, you know, Ethereum can command a sizable premium relative to physical commodities um, that, 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 that otherwise Bitcoin, Bitcoin could not. And so when you kind of think about oil or coal or, or kind of general commodities, those are in the hundreds of trillions of dollars um, in, 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 in market cap or in value. Um, I think increasingly we're starting to see ETH as this productive financial asset and something that you guys kind of introduced as the sort of that internet bond. Um, and that that is sort of broken away from Bitcoin specifically kind of with the, with the general consensus algorithm of, of, of Bitcoin versus ETH, especially as ETH transitions to proof of stake. Um, but when we kind of think about valuing ETH as a, as, a, as a productive asset, that's where I think it's it's deviating a little bit from Bitcoin as sort of that non-productive monetary asset. 
Um, and so when we kind of think about the potential value accrual there, um, you can kind of think of it as, as the same way that you might, might value a, a traditional bond. Uh, and so you can kind of, kind of guarantee this, this sort of yield, um, this, this kind of risk-free rate perhaps um, that, 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 that ETH can generate um, and I think that because it's native to the internet, that's what makes it so unique, right? Um, and then that, that's sort of that, that last narrative of perhaps, you know, Ethereum is, is a new country or a new nation state, that sort of digital country. Um, and so that's one that kind of transcends borders um, and one that is native to the internet. Uh, and so the way that I kind of like to look at Ethereum, what excites me most about Ethereum is, is in the context of kind of this ever more, more globalized world, right? Where we're all increasingly connected to each other. Uh, and so there's going to necessarily be demand for cooperation on an equally global scale. And, and one that doesn't rely on traditional means of identity or legal assurances. Uh, and so when you think about Ethereum as an experimentation layer on which you can build these, these economic primitives with little counterparty risk, uh, that's that's something that's very exciting, and and I, I will admit that that's that's not something two years ago that I would have been completely sold on. Um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of the Bitcoiners they tend to look at Ethereum um, as as something that d isn't worthy of existence because it has uh, a much larger attack surface, right? So they 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 look at kind of the technical security risk of Ethereum and say, why do you need Ethereum? Um, and and I've sort of I've sort of started to realize that there is actually a need for that higher programmability than is currently being offered by Bitcoin. And I think the potential benefit is bigger than the attack surface that it introduces. Um, and so that's ultimately kind of where, where I stand with Ethereum. And I also had one last point, which was at ARC, and, and, I, and I love what, what Chris said about kind of the, the, the risk appetite that ARC had um, and how that's sort of evolved over the last few years. Um, I think one of our biggest aha moments when it came to even comparing Bitcoin to Ethereum was, was uh, early in 2020 when, when Ethereum uh, flipping Bitcoin in terms of fee revenue. Um, and so that was something where if you think about fee as a proxy for demand to use the network, and now Ethereum has you know, not only exceeded uh, on, on transaction throughput and transaction settled, but on actual sort of demand to use it, um, that was something where where we're like, you know, it, it, the usage and the interest is undeniable. Um, and, and it's and, and when you couple that with with the, the community and, and sort of the the ideals that Ethereum has has been able to, to build for itself, um, it, it, it makes a very compelling case for, for why there's a tremendous upside. So I want to double click on what you were talking about, Yassine, with the whole um, yield side of Ether, the asset, right? This is a very core component of the relationship between Ether and Ethereum. Uh, proof of stake allows the Ethereum protocol to issue Ether yield. Uh, and as we started talking with this whole crypto section, we talked about Bitcoin as a non-sovereign money. It's a money that transcends nations, that transcends borders. Uh, and uh, Ether, as this new similar sort of technology that transcends borders, uh, offers a, a, a new protocol issued yield in Ether terms and Ether denominations that has no counterparty risk, right? Like the Ether is always sol uh, solvent. Ethereum is always solvent because it can always issue new Ether, which is kind of a paradigm shift in where we can find yield in the world. Now we can find yield in crypto terms, in crypto native assets, internet native assets that have no nation state dependencies. And so uh, I, I want to turn this question to, to Kathy. Uh, 
the cost of capital in the traditional world is really dependent on you know uh, the the bond market. How much how risky are you going to get based off of the yields you can get in dollars on the bond market? But now that we've unlocked this new internet native risk free rate with ether staking, do you think that's going to how do you think that's going to impact uh, global yields and, and global like investment appetite as uh, Ethereum uh, gets more and more adopted? If it does get more and more adopted over time, well, um, I. I think part of the heightened regulatory talk here in the United States and, and elsewhere, but it's really taken off uh, in the last few months here, is because uh, what you are talking about, the yield, has attracted so much interest that the banks themselves are beginning to feel it. Uh, I have been shocked. I listened to especially JP Morgan's call. It's a good kind of staple to understand what's going on in the banking industry. And, you know, in a V-shaped recovery, uh, Jamie Dimon was telling us that their loan growth would be negative through the end of this year. I said, what? Uh, and I began to think could it be? Could what's going on uh, in uh, in the uh, Ethereum world already be impacting banks? You know, prices are determined at the margin, and so this could be really hurting the banks. And I think we're. I'm going to take a very close look uh, during the next uh, few earnings seasons to to see if we can dimension it. It does. You know, it doesn't seem like it is big enough yet. Uh, but I'm beginning to wonder. You know, the search for yield, uh, which again, uh, the the extremes, the bond market in the the traditional world. I believe is in a bubble, certainly on the corporate credit side, which is where the risk is. Uh, and I, I can't help but believe that others believe the same and are searching elsewhere for yield, uh, especially the hedge funds, I would say. Uh, so uh, I, I, that's the first thing that comes to mind when you ask your question. And I'm beginning, and, I, and now you're going to have to rephrase your question if you want me to go any further. Well, I just want to ask, I just want to follow up on that because the podcast and the movement, we we have here is called bankless, right? So we, we've seen this for a while, but um, we're actually not sure that the banks are actually worried about it right now. You think they are? Oh, definitely. I think part of the uh, regulatory heat that is taking place now is, uh, is because the banks are beginning to see how much this is going to hollow them out. Wow. There's, there's, there's a really key thing that, that Kathy said of prices being set at the margin. And I would layer in another thing that I learned from her of um, what really matters is the, the share of incremental growth. Um, and so you have very large bases. And so you could look at the banks and be like, well, how could crypto, you know, this kind of small thing be disrupting these very large based banks. But if, if crypto, when you look at these growth rates in the hundreds of percents, if that is, eating the incremental growth share, that starts to weigh on bank growth expectations and all assets are priced based on expectations, right? And so that's where these seemingly small things that are hyper growth can have a significant impact on the growth expectations of much larger asset bases. Um, and so, 
you know, when we when we think about the yield market, you 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 have the people who are lending and then also the people who are borrowing, right? Um, and when I at least think of myself down, I feel old for crypto, right? I'm 31. Um, like <laughs> ancient. I'm I'm basically a crypto boomer now. I'll, I'll admit <laughs> it. But um, like myself down, I I see people like increasingly asking like, hey, like can I can I use this? to borrow against, right? Like if you if you think of something like MakerDAO, um, that I can take out a loan 365 days a year, 24 seven, um, it's a flat rate. Um, and, you know, the while, while Maker's rates, and when I say flat rate, like everyone gets the same rate, there's no preferential treatment. There are other systems that give you fixed rate lending. Um, and so that whole world is is mushrooming, and that's the some of the incre- incremental share. I think a thing I want to piece apart a little bit more here is this idea of the risk free rate, um, because I, I think it could be so fundamental. So when you think of the you know U.S. Treasuries um, providing a risk free rate, this is something that you look at a lot, Kathy, as like the the base of valuation for for assets. And I want to call it a risk minimized rate um, because yes. I think that that yes. we just presume, you know, the U.S. is always going to remain solvent, but mm-hmm. there is still counterparty risk there. And so the, there's a risk minimized rate uh, in the meat space on uh, T-bills. And then Ether is going to provide the most risk minimized yield in the crypto space. And and. I, I want to call it risk minimized because people are going to say there's way too much risk in crypto. You can call it risk free. So then we just agree, okay, it is risk minimized. And then you start to look at what are the components that go into risk minimization. And this is where we get into the importance of decentralization, right? Where not all proof of stake is created equal. Um, and you've got, you know, delegated versus the more pure proof of stake that, that Ethereum is um, working towards. I've got a plane flying nearby. But um, Kathy, I guess a question I would have for you is, can you envision a future where Ethereum's risk-free rate or risk-minimized rate is starting to um, influence the, the broader internet economy and be that, that baseline for how people think about valuing other internet-based assets? I absolutely can see that, Um, uh, especially since uh, monetary policies around the world have pretty much become unhinged. And, you know, talk about trust. Uh, I think there's more trust in uh, this ecosystem, you know, in in the way you've defined it, risk minimized, uh, than there might be in the traditional world uh, as as if we're right, there's going to be a lot of creative destruction and counterparty risk. Uh, and these banks are going to be losing uh, share to the crypto world. And I, I want to get back to that in a moment um, because you seem so surprised. And I think it's so uh, obvious, but now I realize what the disconnect is there. Uh, uh, but yes, absolutely, I can. And if I uh, could say something. I learned an important lesson in the, it was the currency crisis, the, the Asian currency crisis in the 90s, 97, I think it was. And the Thai bot devalued. And uh, 
nobody thought anything of it. What you know, Thailand was uh, you know hard hardly measurable out there, uh, but. It ricocheted. There was an Asian crisis that took place, domino effect. And so we began to ask companies like Boeing at the time, oh, what's your exposure to Asia? It seems as though something's unraveling there. And they'd say, ah, nothing, you know, not even 5%. Well, what they didn't say is it might have been 4% of their sales, but it was more than 100% of their growth. And so when Asia went down, Boeing's earnings imploded in a way that most people couldn't understand because they said, wait a minute, they told us it was only 5%. Yes, but they didn't say what percent of the growth it was. Uh, and uh, I think we're talking about something equivalent here. And so, oh, yes, the banks are onto this. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I was a little bit surprised. I think it's because, like, we're in the, sort of the crypto trenches. And to Yassine's, like, um, you quote early, right? We're somewhere in that stage of them ignoring us and them laughing at us. That's the stage yeah. we've lived in, in crypto. Yes. And so to hear somebody outside of that crypto bubble say, no, actually, they're in the stage of maybe fear fight. Mm -hmm. and, to, and for you to talk about it as, like, a hollowing out of the banking system and they see that, they see that on the margin and it's starting to affect their growth rates mm -hmm. is is pretty amazing actually for, for me to hear. But like, let's talk about that a little bit more. So uh, this is not the first time an industry has been hollowed out and you hearken this back to the early days of the internet. Uh, and of course, a lot of early fintechs have been born since the birth of the internet. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about um, your thoughts here. So I think we, we agree that banks, big banks, are going to be completely disrupted. I'm, I'm curious how fintech sort of fits into this. We've got Visa. We've got uh, MasterCard just bought a, uh, a crypto company, CypherTrace. Uh, we've got PayPal entering. We've got um, you know Jack Dorsey and Square doing things in crypto. Is We call it, Kathy, the DeFi mullet. We, we think there's actually going to be like uh, an increasing number of fintech companies who have sort of the fintech in the front and the DeFi in the back, right? That's where the party is. How do you see this shaping out, right? Fintech and crypto, is this a match made in heaven or are they opposing factions? Oh, uh, so um, MasterCard and Visa, I consider them part of the old world, old DNA, and they see the writing on the wall. They're trying to figure out how to co cut their costs and and insinuate themselves into the crypto world. Uh, but they are really hostage to the banks, right, when you think about it. Uh, so I wouldn't put them in. They would call themselves fintech. I don't call them fintech, but you know, I've been wrong on Visa for a very long time. I've always thought, uh, you know, someone would come and knock off that kind of uh, duopoly. Um, as far as the others, so PayPal and Square have digital wallets. Um, we really, so Max Friedrich, uh, our fintech analyst, working with Yassin, uh, has, uh, has, has done a, a, an incredible uh, job analyzing the potential for digital wallets. We've looked obviously at WeChat Pay and learned a lot. Uh, we do believe that uh, this is becoming a winner-take-most market. Um, and in our big ideas from last year, I believe, one of the charts is uh, JP Morgan's uh, account user base, customer 
space and uh, uh, charted against uh, Venmo and uh, Cash App. And what you'll see is that JP Morgan's is up and to the right, but every step up was an acquisition. It was acquired growth, which is Mm. not real growth. It's called consolidation in a mature industry. Whereas you look at Square and Cash App, they have surpassed JP Morgan in terms of number of digital accounts, uh, more than 60 million each now. Uh, And they did it in you know, five to seven years, uh, which is which is unbelievable. Uh, and we believe that these these digital wallets are effectively uh, uh, bank branches in our pocket, and they're going to be uh, there right now. There's a lot of peer to peer, and so they've gone viral. Their cost of customer acquisition is twenty dollars per or less, while the banks are paying anywhere from three hundred and fifty dollars to fifteen hundred dollars per uh, uh, user uh, to to bring them into checking accounts, savings accounts, mortgages, and so forth. Uh, uh, those banks grew up and uh, and de- became dependent on the loyalty of their customers. The customers couldn't go anywhere else, uh, and there was a lot of friction if they tried. Uh, but again, the digital wor- world changes that, right? And and so we're seeing this uh, adoption of digital wallets, and I think two-sided marketplaces feeding each other. C- the consumer and the merchant side. Square was very smart starting on the merchant side and then looping in uh, consumers who worked for many of these merchants. And then the peer-to-peer got the viral network going. Uh, So we think banks are, are being hit on that side as well. You know, their their customer base is being, especially the younger customer base, not as profitable in the early years, but absolutely need them in the later years. They're not going to be there. They're going to have digital wallets. I I see for crypto natives even, right? They they can't wait to uh, close out their Wells Fargo account and like even just move to Coinbase. Mm -hmm. That seems to be like this, this hybrid between fintech and crypto. That's, that's sort of a bridge layer. Yes. And, and Coinbase has a shot. We're looking very carefully who is going to be that, who's going to dominate. And it might be regional dominance. I don't know, though. I don't know now that uh, uh, we've got crypto in the mix because crypto is becoming an important part of these digital wallets. Uh, That's why you see PayPal, once Square launched with Bitcoin, PayPal sat up and said, oh, my gosh, you know, and and even PayPal, I'm, I'm watching them aggressively move into crypto now. I think Square's doing it more to infiltrate the rest of the world. PayPal's doing it not to lose out to to Square and Cash App. So it's been pretty interesting. I don't know, uh, uh, Chris or Yassine. Yeah, I was going to add um, two things. Um, One, this is right on time. If you read uh, Carlotta Perez's uh, 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 Technological Innovations, and financial capital. I might have butchered that name, um, <laughs> but Carlotta Perez's book uh, talks about how you have, you know, the early innovators that that get things going, and then when you start to see private sector adoption, that is the precursor then to public sector adoption. And so we're very much in the like private sector adoption. Structurally, when you look at you know PayPal, Square, Coinbase. 
what's happening here, I, I think, is a continuation of um, on-premise hardware to private cloud to public cloud to now we could call it crypto cloud. But what what like if you if you look at Coinbase's cost structure, when they're using Bitcoin, when they're using Ethereum, when they're using these other networks um, for financial or, or monetary services, they've outsourced a lot of their capex to these networks, and they're paying on-demand operating expenses. It is vastly more efficient um, to operate that way than to manage it all on your own. We've seen this play out already from people managing all their own servers to then going to private clouds to now adopting public clouds. And so one way to think of this is like the banks and the existing financial system kind of provide this on-premise slash private cloud financial services layer where they hold everyone hostage. Um, and it's not really a free market. Um, when you look at crypto, it is so open and so competitive. All those costs get dr driven down as close to zero as possible. And so I see it as the next iteration of, of public cloud, where people are going to be outsourcing large amounts or, or, or as much as they can of their capex, of their opex. These companies will operate way more profitably they will get a lot more investment in the in the public markets, and that's going to draw just even more people in this trend. Um, and so that's like these companies, yeah, they're doing it to be sexy and branding, but they're also doing it because it improves their profitability. Mm -hmm. um, the only people who are fighting it are like the very traditional guys who operate the private cloud right now because it hurts their profitability. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. And I think on the other side, so you, you have like the companies themselves that have declining cost structures. But then if you look at the barriers to entry from users as well, they're so much lower than than with traditional banks. Like the to, to have a crypto native bank account literally just requires you to have a private key. And so then you just some sort of user interface. <laughs> with a traditional bank, you have to go through these massive kind of compliance and regulatory hurdles so it's like there's a there's a there's like a, a catalyst on both sides where there's a massive incentive for these fintech companies to continue to bootstrap their 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 operations by leveraging these technologies, and then on the other side you go to a random like teenager of look here just download MetaMask and we'll just deposit in a, a some ETH and then you can go and, and buy an NFT with it. It's like it, it's it's very hard for JP Morgan to compete with that. <laughs> and then I'll and then and then finally. What, what I think a lot of these fintech companies are, are realizing and what they've done quite successfully is that if they don't want to get disrupted in the same way that they disrupted traditional financial services, then they have to embrace crypto. Uh, and, and, and for those who, who aren't, uh, then, 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 then they're likely going to be left in the dust. And that's not just from an infrastructure standpoint, but also from like a cultural standpoint as well, which I think is a really important component of these like cutting edge fintech companies that is often dismissed. If you look at like the way that Cash App has insinuated itself in in the like the grassroots culture movement of of artists and their designs and the merch, it's like no one's ever gonna buy a J.P. Morgan T-shirt or merch <laughs> unless they want to kind of as, as an ironic statement. But you have Cash App dropping these flash sales on merch, and it's like selling for 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 hundreds of uh, of dollars. So just a completely different dynamic. Um, and one that I think is is uh, is fascinating.
At the beginning of this uh, interview so far, we talked to, we asked the question, uh, why does ARC think that the future is so close? Uh, and then when we also talked about uh, the DAO, um, uh, Kathy, you talked about how astounding it was that it could actually source so much capital so fluidly, so quickly. Uh, and when it blew up, that was a buy signal for you because, you know, you said, you know, buy when something blows up. But my, my question is, we're talking about how all these public crypto networks collapse costs down to zero. And uh, one of the uh, answers you gave about why the future actually is way closer than everyone thinks is that all of these S-curve adoptions are going to interact with each other. And so I want to open up how DeFi actually plays a role in that and how this capital allocation and collapsing costs of public networks play a role in that. Can uh, Kathy, can I get you to elaborate about how DeFi specifically and these uh, lowering costs of financial services can help actually spur innovation in all the other sectors that ARC is bullish on? Um, okay, that's a big question. I'm probably going to bring uh, Yassine and Chris into, into this one. Um, as you were asking the question, what uh, pinged for me, and I'd love to hear Yassine and Chris weigh in on this, you know, the convergence of artificial intelligence and uh, blockchain technology. Um, you know, I've been, uh, Chris knows this because we first talked about it after a meetup that uh, Placeholder had. And I remember, uh, I've forgotten the name, was it Live Peer? Live Peer, is that the name of it? Yeah. There was Live Peer. I mean, we've done quite a few meetups. There was a Numerai meetup, there was um, a MakerDAO meetup. And, and I was I was trying to think, wow, I hear them talking and I think part of the solution will be bringing artificial intelligence into the ecosystem. So I would love to know uh, from Chris and Yassine, you know, if they see that happening or how they see that happening, because artificial intelligence costs, training costs are dropping at a 68 percent per year rate. Think about that. You drop the cost of anything 68% per year, you're going to get a lot more of it. And yeah. it, right? And it solves problems. Uh, so, Chris? Yeah. So, two things. One, I'd say the clearest example we have, um, at least the placeholder works closely with, that's the convergence of machine learning and crypto would be Numerai, um, where and, and this is going to apply, I, I think, to, to the way DeFi is going to play into a lot of these overlapping S curves. You know, Numerai, because of the collapsing costs of compute and the scale of data, is able to um, employ thousands of data scientists all around the world, right, who are able to submit models that help manage Numerai's hedge fund. The way in which they incentivize that is effectively using De DeFi, right? Like DeFi is like at, at a very simple level is like transacting and saving. Um, and based on everything we're saying with traditional finance, those systems cannot scale to coordinate people globally. There's way too much friction. And so if you want to um, coordinate global sets of digital actors, you have to use DeFi. You, like, you would spend hundreds of millions of dollars and you know, lose all your hair by the time you're able to pull it off using traditional finance. And so like when you look at... Um, the, the sharing economy movement, which now feels dated, but which I think is still just really getting started. Um, that movement 
you know, it's messed up in two ways. One, the, the, the capital is all owned typically by a concentrated shareholders, concentrated set of shareholders, as we see with Uber or Lyft or whatever. So the value accrual doesn't go out to the supply siders, the demand siders, the people who actually create the network. Um, and then two, you know, a lot of the sharing economy to date has been meat space focused, you know, and so then it has to go region by region by region. What DeFi enables is like the financial backend to scale the sharing economy for any digital service globally from day one. And like, you know, for us who exist all day in crypto, it's like, okay, yeah, cool. That's obvious. But like for the rest of the world, who's not paying close attention to crypto, that's pretty mind blowing if they could conceive of it that way and not get lost in, you know, all the chaos and mistakes and, you know, get rich quick schemes. Yeah, I, I want to add just one more thing that that Chris had alluded to earlier, which is exactly, you know, what we're discussing here in the relationship with cost declines. But it's like in, in the traditional banking services, it, there is no real free market. The, the, the market is much more inefficient in its ability to, to kind of determine that cost. So now you're opening up this layer of experimentation where it is highly transparent. It is open source. It is ruthlessly competitive. Um, you know, you're able to kind of spin up an, a new project by forking it and, and, and changing the rules and then seeing whether or not the free market, you know, the, the decides to migrate to that new protocol. Well, it's like that is obviously going to, 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 to drive cost declines downward. Um, and so I think the, the general uh, premise of, of being able to provide this permissionless, unfettered access to financial services um, is is going to to yield much lower cost than what we see we, we see in the traditional world. There's one more thing I want to add, and it relates to something we were talking about at the start of this. And I know we're probably running uh, low on time here, but I don't think people still realize the um, radical amount of openness that that crypto has. And it's you know the open source code, it's the open data, and it's also the open market structure. And when you have so much openness you cannot hide inefficiencies. All the inefficiencies continue to exist in the existing political and financial system because they are closed and opaque. So I basically see it as like a bunch of light flooding into all these opaque inefficient sectors um, that then eradicates all of the inefficiencies over time. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes years, it takes decades, but the directional trend is obvious. So all of this makes uh, ARK very bullish on crypto, right? And there are a number of ways, I, I suppose, uh, an individual or investment fund like yourselves can get exposure to crypto. I know some of this because some of this is public, but you know, a GBDC is a grayscale product. ARK holds some of that. ETH, another grayscale product, exposure to ETH. Uh, ARK holds some of that, some other things as well. But I'm, I'm curious, a broader picture, because um, we, we've talked about regulatory a few times, we've mentioned it. And I'm curious from your perspective, Kathy, if, if you think that the structure of ARC actually limits what you can do in crypto, is there more that you'd like to do but can't because of how ARC's structured? Or you could ask the same question another way. Does the regulatory environment itself limit you? Not just the structure of ARC, but the regulatory environment itself. Do you find that limiting to ARC or to crypto in general? Well, uh, GBTC and ETH, uh, yes, that is how we gained our first exposure to both. And um, and yes, we're, this in 2015, September of 2015, 
uh, we had to go to the New York Stock Exchange and explain what the heck we were doing. <laughs> and, and and they said, well, OK, one percent, you know, limit the risk. So we put it in at one percent and never sold. <laughs> you know, so it went to 10 percent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is then the max. Yeah. Yeah. So um it was limiting, but uh, I'm just happy we were able to do it. You know, we we, we were allowed to do it. And uh, uh, and so what you're talking about is the ETF structure. And uh, in uh, the ETF structure, we can only own securities. Uh, the grayscale uh, GBTC and ETH are, are securities, they're grantor trusts. Uh, and so that's the only way in an ETF we could access. Uh, we're looking at other wrappers as well, which are going to give us more degrees of freedom. Uh, so we're, we're going to help uh, evolve the market in any way that we can, uh, certainly from the public, uh, you know, uh, SEC registered, uh, company point of view, because that is what we are, and we are predominantly retail. Uh, so, I, I, I don't. So, yes, the ETF itself limited, but we're we're we are maneuvering around that. We are pivoting, um, just like we had to pivot at the beginning of Arc. Uh, we described ourselves in terms of the active equity ETF. Uh, that invest in disruptive innovation. We shouldn't have even mentioned active equity ETF because the main point was disruptive innovation. And let's see how we can harness that. It doesn't matter what kind of wrapper is out there. So, so that's what we're trying to do. Um, and just to clarify, ARK's not pivoting into becoming a crypto firm. I would oh, say ARK is, ARK is, is going to continue doing what it is great at doing and finding ways to adapt yes. um, itself and some of its structures to more wholly be able to embrace crypto. Well, I'm actually curious your, 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 your take on this too, Kathy, because you've seen technologies blossom, like change is hard, right? It's tar- hard for everyone. It's scary at times. This is a massive change for regulators. They're, they're trying to figure out what the scope of um, their regulatory agency is supposed to be in crypto. And I think some of them are doing their best. Um, some of them are tr- still trying to understand this. But, uh, you know, there, there's been a sentiment that this is very bearish. Some, some recent things in the U.S. have been bearish for, for crypto. Others have said, no, actually, the fact that regulators are talking about this, this is bullish. And I'm curious if we can learn anything from other industries that are that are leaning into the future, where there are things that are scary to regulators uh, that could apply to crypto. What are your thoughts here? Uh, sure. It, we, we had a good brainstorm on this topic led by uh, Yassine, so I'd love to have Yassine weigh in after. But um, I, I, I agree with a more positive terp- interpretation. And one of the reasons is we have gotten to know uh, the the research people uh, in FinHub at the SEC, and they know what they're talking about. When we first went to them, uh, well, actually, Chris actually was at the firm when this happened too, and and he uh, um, he wrote uh, an answer uh, to the SEC's request quest for information about were we ready for a Bitcoin ETF at that time? And we were not ready. 2016. And, yeah, 2016. We were not ready. Um, and we and uh, uh, the SEC 
took in and basically used uh, a lot of what Chris wrote in its own response. Uh, so we've gotten to know over time uh, the, the kind of research taking place at the SEC, and it's excellent. It's really good. Now, you have Gary Gensler coming in. He had been at MIT, we all know, uh, uh, focused on blockchain technology, especially Bitcoin. So at least at least he understands. He was an advocate. So, so that's good. Now, what you have in the United States, I think, are six financial regulators who are fighting for power. And uh, I, I think uh, that might be a little bit of what's going on right now. And the fact that um, the SEC has issued Coinbase a Wells notice uh, might be, seem like a very scary thing. When I saw that, I said, what? They haven't even launched the product yet. What, what is this? And uh, uh, really, this is the SEC's and the industry's way of pushing the discussion forward, moving it forward. Uh, 3IQ sued the Canadian regulator and won in the courts. Uh, uh, and so this, this uh, has precedent, you know, if, uh, if Coinbase were to turn around and sue. Uh, I'm not saying how this is going to work out, but, but uh, you know, 3IQ against all odds at the time, and this was not that long ago, this was last year, um, they won. So I think that the discussion will move forward and we will get more regulatory clarity. In this case, um, we're dealing with the Howie test and now the Reeves test, which was 1990. And there's something in the Reeves test having to do with promissory notes that um, that might uh, need to be clarified as it relates to what Coinbase wants to do with Lend. Uh, so we will get some answers. I think it's good. Uh, I'm never happy when I, I know regulators uh, are, are trying to uh, vie for a certain amount of power because uh, then it can get a little dramatic. Uh, but, but I do think the, the discussion is going to move forward and we need it to. We absolutely need it to. Kathy and team, this has been an absolutely uh, fantastic discussion so far. We've covered so much already. And, um, you know, everything you're talking about, I think we, we uh, definitely resonate with. I, I want to maybe end with uh, this question to, to all three of you. I'm wondering if you have the same take or similar takes or different takes. Um, very much like David and I, some of us in the crypto industry, we're in this crypto bubble. We feel like cryptos may be inevitable, but there are technologies that also fail, Right. Um, I'm, I'm curious your perspective on what is holding crypto back at this point in time. So like we've made so much progress, but we're not there yet. What's holding us back? I want to start with Yassine on that question and close out with Kathy. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I, I would say that at a high level, I'm fairly happy with the way that crypto has played out in the last call it 10, 15 years. Like if you were to really ask yourself that like state that Bitcoin didn't even exist 15 years ago. And today, this week, there's a, a sovereign state that has adopted it as legal tender. Um, you know, it's hard to say that there are things that are quote unquote, holding it back. Um, obviously, there's always room for improvement, but I'd say for the most part, I, I'm quite optimistic at, at, the, at the evolution of crypto in, 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 since its inception. 
Um, I, I, you know, I, th I think that there's obviously still a need for for education and for regulatory clarity, as as Cappy said. So if we want to kind of continue to catalyze that adoption, some people just don't really understand its value proposition, and so I think it's it's on us to continue to educate. Um, and then if you were to ask specific to to you know a particular network, call it you know Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know if if you were to ask maybe potential failure points. Um, you know, while crypto has done tremendously well, I, I still think that, you know, complacency um, at the at the protocol level, uh, you, you know, is I'm sorry. Sorry about that. It, it, it is certainly a risk. Um, and so when we kind of think about Bitcoin specifically and the trade off between institutional adoption and preserving its ethos, it's like Bitcoiners, you know, should not remain or should not be complacent. They should kind of continue to kind of think at, at the cutting edge. Um, and then and then obviously even with Ethereum, we're seeing some interesting traction outside of it um, and, and, and kind of should encourage that experimentation. Uh, so, you know, crypto generally, I, I think we should just, we should keep, keep treading along as we have. Uh, and then at the protocol level, um, you know, not remain complacent. Chris, same question to you, what's holding crypto back? So I would agree with what Yassin said around we've gotten really far um, for the short period of time that crypto has been around. And I, I, I operate from the place that crypto is inevitable. Like it is the new financial economic coordination rails for the digital world. And it's going to be absolutely pervasive in a way that we can't imagine in 20 to 30 years. So where I spend a lot of my time is thinking about where power and capital is going to concentrate within this inevitable future. And so um, while I think nothing is holding crypto back from, from this pervasiveness, I think what's holding crypto back from its maximum societal impact is the way that power and capital have gravity and a tendency to corrupt. Um, and I see it all throughout crypto. Um, I've, I, I started much more as an idealist, I would say, in 2014-15 than I am now as, as a VC. And um, seeing how concentrated ownership is of some of these networks is really sad. Um, when, you, when you look at the scale of the returns and who those returns are going to, like most of the LPs of large institutions are also large uh, capital allocators who manage for high net worth individuals. Um, and so there is, there is this, this almost inescapable truth that like capital is created from capital, just as life lives off of life. And so um, when, you, when you have things go through 100 or 1,000 Xs, you need to make sure that that's as distributed as possible before the thousand X happens. Otherwise you just enriched a very small group of people enormously versus enriching a very broadly distributed set of people pretty, pretty well. And so um, I, I would just go back to like, nothing is gonna crop, nothing is gonna stop crypto. Crypto is inevitable, but the amplitude of societal impact will be um, controlled by our own self-control. Wow, well said. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack lot, there. Yeah. Uh, but Kathy, I want to ask you the same question. What I do have you to think? Follow that. Yeah. <laughs> what is holding crypto back? <laughs> okay, I'll just, I'll just put uh, uh, maybe a fine point on this. Two trillion dollars 
So nearly 10% of the U.S. economy uh, or 2% of the global economy already. Remember um, the the Asia example I gave where only 5%, 4%, but growing uh, enormously. So in many ways, uh, crypto has arrived and is not going to go away. I completely agree uh, with Chris. Uh, I think going through the big volatility bouts as we were just getting institutional interest, uh, you know, May, I think there, you know, there was a, a little bit of a pullback, but, you know, I think, and, and you could see this with Ether, uh, well, especially, you know, it didn't skip a beat. It didn't skip a beat. It worked brilliantly. Whereas most in the financial world are just saying this, you know, just because they don't understand exactly how it's set up. They're just saying this is leverage upon leverage. This is uh, upon leverage. This thing's going to come come crumbling down. So the, the more times we go through volatility and the network comes out stronger for it, uh, the more uh, credibility it will have and the more confidence um, uh, investors will have in it. Uh, and then the other thing, uh, and we we uh, did the B word uh, uh, you might have heard about, and uh, a large part of that was, okay, how do we support this ecosystem so it does become stronger? Uh, and with Bitcoin, that would be supporting developers. Uh, uh, it, it seems like there's no problem with developers because of the economic model uh, uh, on the Ethereum network. Uh, so supporting, but also I think you've got just listening to uh, Chris and Yasin, uh, uh, and I don't know you so well, but it's clear uh, you you uh, know in great depth uh, what is right and what might be wrong. Uh, just going out there, fine minds surfacing and exposing bad behavior, uh, and you know coming down on it. Certainly from the you know the new governance uh, platforms that are evolving. Absolutely. Well, uh, Kathy, Yasin, Chris, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. And, uh, you know, thank you for spending some time to talk about the future. We do think that crypto is inevitable. We're glad that it's part of ARK's innovation platform. And uh, it was so good to talk to the three of you today. Thank you, Ryan and David. Thank you so much. This is yeah. fun. Thank Thanks, you, Chris. you guys. You ask great questions. Yep. Need to get you three together more often. I think big ideas come out of conversations like these. Of course, Bankless Nation, we've got some action items for you, as we always do. Go check out ARC's innovation platform, the diagram that we were talking about earlier in the show. That'll be a link in the show notes. Also, download ARC's investment case for Bitcoin, a fascinating extrapolation of that idea. You can also see ARC's big ideas report for 2021. We will include those links in the show notes. Risks and disclaimers, guys. None of this has been financial advice. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is risky. DeFi is risky. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Thanks.